Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in rural science. In addition, we'll be joined by and Dr. Oscar Pacheco to talk about his new book, Living with Heartburn. Also, Jimmy Lin will join us to tell us what the Computer History Museum is all about. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grok. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. Okay. The uh, the governorship is just going crazy it's now. It's within huh? our grasp. I can sense it. <laughs> you know, the, the the all the candidates, I think, are falling away, and now I think it's clearing the path for Berkeley Rocks to ride into Sacramento on a white horse of science. Arnie, just step aside right now, and you won't get hurt. That's all I'm going to say. So here's something I've been wanting to ask you. Do you ever com- confuse the word sick for that other word? Uh, what, seven? Uh, no, sex. Sex. You know, six and sex. Oh, okay. They sound kind of similar. <laughs> yeah, I guess they do. So uh, it turns out in a lot of children, I think probably up to 20% of them, they actually have a hard time distinguishing between the similar-sounding phonemes. So, for example, uh, bet and bit. Right. So uh, a researcher at Oxford, David Moore, has devised a program, uh, Phenomena, which is used to uh, train kids' uh, ability to distinguish uh, between similar-sounding phonemes. Okay, I see. And, um, you know, it's made as a game, so it's fun and easy for the kids to pick up. Little distinctions between the two uh, sounds. Right, right. And what he's found is, like, for for kids who've been playing this game for maybe eight weeks a few times a week, they've been able to improve their language skills by up to two years in terms of their the learning. Wow, up to two years. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Uh huh. I wonder if it could do anything up for me. You know, I've got a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> well, right now he's actually devising a program for adults who are learning uh, foreign languages, it's supposed to help them, you know, pick up the uh, nuances know, of the language. The nuances of a new language. Oh, that's that's interesting. It has always been my understanding that you know the brain's ability to detect these subtle differences in accent uh, are are most uh, plastic when they're young and actually can't That's really true. train quite as well when you're older. You know, just knowing from personal experience, I mean, you know, tests that have been done on, for instance, people from Germany or Japan, you know, they have trouble distinguishing things such as R's and L's, this kind of thing. Correct. And even after massive training, still have difficulty. Right. But uh, Hopefully I guess... the program will help. You know, <laughs> we can only hope. So you won't co- confuse your sixes and your sexes, right? Only if sex is at six, but uh, usually it's at seven, so I'd, I'm okay. Uh-huh. All right, so if anyone wants to know more, just go to uh, the August edition of The New Scientist. Well, now that uh, we've settled the issue of sex and sex, <laughs> do you like it fizzy and foamy, or do you like it smooth? I like it fizzy. Fizzy? Yeah. Fizzy's certainly good. Yeah. Uh, My Guinness, of course. Well, it turns out that you might be out of luck because it's actually smooth. It's smooth? It's actually smooth. Really? Yes. What are we talking about here? <laughs> We're talking about the structure of space and time. Space and time? And that's right. Whoa. That sounds almost like science fiction. It, it almost is, in fact, and it's it's at the realm of uh, science and fiction. It's, it's uh, you know, theoretical physics, which is uh, practically science fiction nowadays. Yes. But, uh, I prefer to call it fantasy. 
There's one ring, and it'll rule them all. Uh-huh. Uh, but it turns out that a, a recent uh, study on Einstein's uh, theory of uh, special relativity uh-huh. and quantum gravity have revealed that, in fact, space and time are smooth and not fizzy and foamy like a lot of people are trying to, such as a, a lot of uh, researchers are trying to uh, imply by trying to melt quantum mechanics and special relativity to give rise to a quantum gravity theory. So what does this mean in, like, in real terms? Are we talking about space and time which is continuous, or uh, uh, one that which you know there's like uh, disparities here and there? Uh, that That's correct. So essentially at the very tiniest space scales, length uh-huh. scales, the question is whether or not uh, space is actually continuous right. or actually is just discrete in oh, okay. chunks. And uh, it's essential for a lot of theories of quantum gravity that space actually be discrete. Uh, sort of like uh, being digitized, you know, right. discrete units little, on the screen. Little bits, yeah. But in fact, it turns out recent experiments have shown that it's smooth. And it's, it's an amazing series of experiments uh, basically uh, looking at cosmic rays that have been emitted from faraway galaxies. And there's a certain caveat with the, the rule. If quantum gravity holds, then you should see certain types of uh, X-rays. If not, you should see other kinds. Right. And what they found is a result consistent with this smooth hypothesis. I wonder what Deepak Chopra would say. He says everything's interconnected. You know, Deepak Chopra is so much wiser than we... You know, if we just asked him what it was all about, he could explain everything. Yeah. No more scientists, just Deepak Chopra. <laughs> we love Chopra! Anyway, this is a great piece of work carried out by Floyd Stecker, a theoretical astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, and it's published in the recent edition of the journal Astroparticle Physics. All right, here's something from the uh, small, small, small world of nanotechnology. All righty. What's so small about nanotechnology nowadays? Turns out you can create materials embedded with nanoparticles. Okay. Before, the reality was you'd have some sort of solid support, and then you would grow these nanocrystals on top of them, or, uh, you know, have, like, some glue which would bind it to the uh, the solid support, but now right. you can grow them directly into, say, a glass. Oh, that's kind of neat. So it actually physically replaces glass molecules. Right. With so, other like, if you took a cross section of this uh, mm-hmm. glass, you'll, have, you'll see particles just embedded everywhere. Oh, ah, okay. That's kind of like a story we had on a while back where they were embedding phosphorus in a layer of silicon. But this is like a direct synthesis. You you know, ah. you mix it up. It's it's like a vinaigrette basically. And then when you gel up the uh, the the silica part, the glass part, the nanoparticles right in its place. Oh, they just sort of intercalate. Yeah. Get embedded right in the right material. Embedded. It is like a vinaigrette. Mm-hmm. You know what's so great about vinaigrette? Right. It goes good with salads. I wonder if this will go good with salads. It's a little bit chunky. But... <laughs> well, you gotta love that. <laughs> yeah, if you have those spearmint nanoparticles, everything's all. All right. Anyway, so so practical <laughs> applications for this. Uh, what uh, are they doing? So they can tune the uh, magnetic f- properties of these materials by uh, exposing it to ammonia, and uh, this can change the magnetic properties of these uh, particles by how much light you put into it. Oh, that's amazing. So it's it's sort of like designer materials. Designer materials, highly tunable, and, you know, one possible application could be uh, hard drives that, you know, all you have to do is put uh, you have a pit that's ultra-ultra small on a nanoscale, very, very uh, high storage capacity. Let's wait for that. I got I got a lot of movies to burn on a, a CD. <laughs> what kind of movies? Uh, you don't want to know. <laughs> it's a life well spent, my friend. <laughs> I see, I see. Anyways, if anyone's interested, they can go to uh, the recent edition of Ankiwan Kemi, uh, Volume 115. All right, how many strikes does it take to 
get out. I believe it's three, right? It is three strikes. And you go to jail <laughs> for a very long, <laughs> three long strikes, time. and you are out. Well, that might almost be the case for transplants. 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 What kind of transplants? Uh, we're talking about brain, well, brain cell transplants. Oh, not brain transplants. No, not. I, not. I need one of those though. I've been waiting for one like all my life, and they keep promising me one, but here I am, walking around without a brain. Oh. Anyway, yes, uh, we're talking strike two for transplants. Ooh, that's not good, huh? No, it's not. Uh, the problem is that uh, major disease, Parkinson's disease, right now being trying to treated with uh, transplant of fetal stem cells. Into, fetal stem cells. Right. So Parkinson's disease results from a uh, loss of certain neurons carrying a chemical called dopamine. Right. And this dopamine basically allows for the normal movement process to occur. Uh, so the thought was you put these fetal stem cells in place of that, they'll grow, they'll replace the dopamine, and everything will be just fine. Uh-huh. But studies that have been carried out so far and a review of all the cases that have been carried out have uh, just shown that uh, there's too many side effects and it doesn't really look like it's actually improving the condition any. So there's no improvement at all? Pretty much none, although they do say there's some improvement for... Uh, Patients who have very mild cases of Parkinson's. I see. So it might be slowing the growth, perhaps. They don't really know. Oh. Yeah. So strike two, but they're, they're still hoping that perhaps embryonic stem cells might be the next thing because they're still a little more pluripotent. Right. Can grow and all this sort of thing. Right. Maybe we'll get a home run next time. <laughs> you know, they're they're at bottom of the second, bottom of the ninth, I guess it is, and uh, strike two, and, but they could hit the homer. Uh-huh. Anyway, so this was a, a major study uh, conducted by uh, Kurt Freed, and it's in uh, the recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science this week. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Dr. Paula Pacheco will join us to tell us about heartburn. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Heartburn. Well, as you may or may not know, it is one of the major causes of discomforts for Americans. It is also uh, one of the causes for esophageal cancer. Well, joining us today is Dr. Paolo Pacheco, who will tell us a little bit about heartburn and gastrointestinal disorders. And he's also the author of a recent book, Living with Heartburn. Dr. Pacheco, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grocks today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So first of all, could you tell us uh, what exactly is heartburn? Sure. Heartburn is a sensation uh, underneath the ribcage and underneath the breastbone of acid or or burn. And it actually feels like your heart is burning. And, and what it actually is is acid from the stomach that's actually washing up into the chest, into the esophagus, uh-huh. and irritating the esophagus. And a lot of people refer to that as indigestion or just basic heartburn. Uh, others refer to it as acid reflux, and those are usually patients who have had a little bit more experience with doctors in medical terminology, but it's all pretty much synonymous. How do you know if you actually have heartburn? Well, uh, the the one thing that, uh, you know, one, the main message that we have to sort of relay to the, view, to the listeners today is that heartburn is almost always 
from acid reflux from the intestine, actually from stomach acid that's washing up, as we just said, into the esophagus. But the other thing that's often missed in patients who think they're having heartburn is actually chest pain from angina or heart disease. Right. And it's really, really important for patients who have that burning sensation or that chest discomfort to see a doctor, particularly if it's new and unusual for them, because you may be actually having a heart attack and that those symptoms can, can be masked and can be, uh, you know, mistaken for heartburn. So the first thing a patient should do is, if they have this kind of symptom, is see a doctor because once you see a doctor, within seconds, really, an electrocardiogram or an EKG can, can tell you if the heart's okay. If the heart's okay, then the remainder of those patients actually do have what's called heartburn, which is just stomach acid in the esophagus. It's a benign condition, and it doesn't kill you, but chronic heartburn or long-term acid reflux can really cause changes and damage in the esophagus that can lead to cancer later in life. And what exactly causes heartburn? Well, there are, we don't exactly you know why certain patients have heartburn, but the majority of patients who have heartburn actually have a problem with diet. And it's a major problem in the United States. Heartburn, as I said, is acid that washes up. And the question you have to ask is, well, why would acid in the stomach go up when it's supposed to go down? And there is a muscle that separates the esophagus from the stomach, and it's called the sphincter. That muscle is usually closed after we eat, and acid in the stomach doesn't go up. It goes down. Patients who have heartburn have a weakness in the muscle, and the acid comes up into the chest. And certain foods cause that muscle to loosen or relax. And foods that do that that are very common are caffeine, alcohol, carbonated beverages, spicy foods, high-fat foods, so any greasy fried foods, chicken, french fries, things like that. Chocolate's also a thing, that, a, a food that can cause loosening of that muscle and, and heartburn. And other than that, spearmint, peppermint, and tobacco. So those are a lot of things that Americans do, and patients that abuse all or some of those things tend to have more heartburn. And can heartburn be also caused by bacteria or stress? That's a good question. Actually, there is bacteria in the stomach in a lot of Americans, and about 40% of all Americans, to be exact, over the age of 50, um, have stomach bacteria called Helicobacter pylori. And actually, initially, they thought that it was related to heartburn, but it's actually not been clinically proven to cause heartburn. So technically, the answer to your question is bacteria don't cause heartburn. It's mostly diet. And another thing I didn't mention that causes heartburn is obesity, which is a major problem in the U.S. as well. So what treatments are available for heartburn right now? Well, when patients come to me with that complaint, I tell them, you know, first of all, you'll, you almost always know you have heartburn if you take Melox or Melantarolates and you feel a little bit better. But other than taking those over-the-counter medicines, which is a kind of, it's really a bad idea if you're taking it all the time because you're not treating the underlying you're problem. Masking you're masking symptoms. And the problem is patients do that for many years sometimes and they never see a doctor. And those are the real high-risk patients. What you really need to do is eat right and lose weight. So if a patient walks in and they're obese or markedly overweight, I say if you lose 5 to 10 pounds, your heartburn might go away by itself. That often helps, and light exercise and stress reduction also help. Other than that, if, if the patient loses weight and they still have the, and they, they reduce their um, anxiety levels and they reduce their stress and they still have the symptoms, I tell them, let's start going through your diet. We talk about what, what do they abuse. Could, is it alcohol? Is it high fat? Is it tomato sauce or spicy foods, we sort of go through the diet and then we start cutting things out one by one. Now, you don't have to change your diet drastically and stop eating, and you don't have to say, my God, my life is over because I have heartburn. Oftentimes, that list of 10 things I gave you, if you cancel one or two out or at least minimize them, your symptoms of heartburn will go away. So in the vast majority of patients, diet and weight loss is all you need to do.
So let's talk about your book. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about it and how you got involved with it? Yeah, I'm a New York, I'm a Manhattan doctor. I worked at uh, Cornell for four years, Cornell Medical University, and I, I've seen thousands of patients with heartburn. It's a very common problem. Forty million Americans have it. And when I started to see more and more patients, I tried to give them some resources to read. And when I looked in the bookstores, there really wasn't much. And what I decided to do about a year ago was to put together this book, which is a 23-chapter, 22-chapter book that's easy to read for the average American. And it basically goes through everything you need to know about heartburn, simple things like what do you ask the doctor, what is heartburn, what dietary changes can I make. These are different chapters. Are there surgical therapies? It talks about cancer. I have a chapter on alternative or uh, alternative therapies and, and um, herbal therapies, and I even have diets in the book. And I wrote the book because I really wanted a patient guide so that patients who have this can go to a Barnes & Noble or to a Borders Books, pick it up, and get a good sense of what to do and to, and to give them information to know when they should see a doctor. Because even though most pa- patients with heartburn don't have long-term ill effects, some actually do increase the risk for, for esophagus cancer, and those are the patients that need to be seen by a doctor like me. And if you have a lot of heartburn and it goes on and on and you're taking these over-the-counter medicines for months to years, you may need to have a special test that we do called an endoscopy, and we can look in the esophagus and we can see if those changes, those precancerous changes are there. And then we can prevent esophageal cancer. So it's a really important condition that people need to know about because it's often overlooked and people often mask the symptoms with all these over-the-counter meds. Uh, you mentioned alternative therapies. Uh, could you describe some of them? Yeah, I mean, basically, there aren't, there isn't much science in terms of, you know, what alternative, uh, what alternative medicines or therapies actually are are effective for these things. And what I talk about in the book is I talk a lot about stress relaxation and yoga and exercise relaxation therapy. So yoga, meditation, other relaxation therapies actually have been in very small trials, and we're talking, you know, small groups of patients effective for reducing such symptoms. But we still need long-term, you know, double-blind placebo control uh, trials in this. They have used aromatherapy, neurotherapy, um, and uh, and other therapies such as reflexology, Reiki, and Ayurveda, and, and basically... These things have been shown in small studies to help, and basically what I talk about in the book is once you've done the diet, once you've lost the weight, if these things don't work, relaxation therapies can often be something that could help you. Although there's not great science to support that, the more patients that do this we can enroll in clinical trials, the more we can learn about it. So it gives you sort of options and it gives you sort of explanations of of small group studies that have been done, and that way patients can at least look for alternative ways to help combat this problem. And for someone who has a sudden onslaught of heartburn, uh, what would you recommend them? If you had, well, it's it's very common actually, you know, for patients who eat late at night or eat really large meals. Some patients will actually, the the classic patient will say, oh, at three o'clock in the morning, I had this horrible chest pain and heartburn. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't lie flat. I had to sit up. Those patients almost always respond to over-the-counter medicines. I usually tell the patient to take Myelox or Mylanta for the night, and then if it persists over the next number of days and it doesn't go away, you should really see a gastroenterologist because we can prescribe prescription medicines that are extremely safe and very, very well tolerated that can actually make the symptoms go away. There are great meds that we've had about a 15-year history with that we can prescribe at one tablet a day, 
and you take this medicine and the acid reflux goes away. Now, again, it's a masking of the symptoms, but it gives us time to cool down the pain, make patients comfortable, and then we can go ahead and look more closely at their diet and their exercise patterns. And we can also look in the esophagus to see if they have precancerous changes. But when you have that horrible symptom, the best thing you can do is take what you have over the counter, call your doctor first thing in the morning, and he or she will have you see a gastroenterologist and we can prescribe medicine for you. The good news is that acid reflux almost always responds well to medicines. The problem is we don't want to put everyone on medicines for life because if you can do the right thing in your your daily habits and in your diet, that would obviously be preferable. What about ulcers? Is there a correlation between heartburn and ulcers? Um, Actually, no. It's interesting. Acid reflux is when acid washes up into the esophagus, as we've said. Ulcer disease is usually when you have a decrease in the integrity of the stomach tissue. So the stomach tissue is weakened in a sense. They, patients who take lots of aspirin and patients who have um, drink a lot of alcohol, for example, which are toxins to the stomach, form ulcers. There are patients who have ulcers that have high acidity in the stomach, but there's actually no direct correlation with ulcers and acid reflux. Although a lot of patients with ulcer pain may also have acid reflux symptoms because the acid increased in the stomach will also cause reflux. But actually comparing the, uh, having a correlation between the two and one causing the other has never been shown. Well, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add, Dr. Pacheco? Yeah, I think, you know, for mo- for patients who have heartburn, I think it's they should look at the book, take a look at it, and learn a little bit about this condition, particularly if they have lots of symptoms. And if they're really worried about it or if these symptoms persist, just see your gastroenterologist or your local doctor, and then you can be evaluated because the last thing you want to do is have a cancer that was preventable. And that's really what can happen in patients with chronic long-term reflux, and that's what we're trying to avoid. And where can we get the book right now? The book is, again, um, Living with Chronic Heartburn, A Complete Health Guide to Acid Reflux, and um, it's in Barnes & Nobles in every bookstore in the country, and it's also at Border Books, and it can also be found on Amazon.com, and it can be ordered there now, actually, and it's, I think it's even reduced online. So it's, it's very easy to access, and it's, it's a really good resource. Great, and we were just talking to Dr. Paolo Pacheco on Living with Heartburn. In a few moments, we'll find out what the Tech Museum is all about. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grux, and joining us again today with the tech update is Jimmy Lin. Jimmy? Thanks, Frank. I thought today I'd talk about the Computer History Museum, the museum that's located in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Its collection is very extensive. It's probably the most important collection of computers, software, and other related materials in the country. Let me give you an example of some of the uh, important items that they have. Uh, They have a Univac 1, which was one of the um, earliest commercially successful mainframes. Mm -hmm. And a Univac helped uh, predict one of the presidential elections back in the 50s. They have some Cray supercomputers. Mm -hmm. You know, back in the day, Cray computers were the fastest 
machines yeah. on the planet, <laughs> far outstripping any you know personal computer, especially during the 70s and the and the 80s. They have a Mits Altair 8800, which is widely considered to be one of the first personal computers. So this was a computer that was actually available for uh, regular individuals to buy. What about the Atari and the Commodores? Those actually came later. Uh-huh. So the Altair came out in 1975, and uh, the Commodore came out a couple of years later. That, that was the computer that uh, uh, Bill Gates was developing software for originally, right? That's right. That's right. So Bill Gates and Paul Allen... Uh, formed Microsoft to build a version of BASIC for the MITS Altair 8800. That was their first product. Mm-hmm. And MITS was in Albuquerque, and Microsoft was founded there. And then after MITS folded, they moved to the Seattle area, which is where they were both from anyway. Right. There's also a Xerox Alto, which was a uh, research computer from uh, Xerox uh, Park, Palo Alto Research Center. Uh-huh. And this is probably the first machine that had all of the modern features of um, personal computers that we take for granted today, which is the graphical user interface, mm-hmm. mouse, and Ethernet. Oh, Ethernet. Except this was back in 1975. Okay. So this was you know, way before anybody was dreaming of having computers with those features in widespread use. Mm-hmm. You know, the, first, the first widespread computer to use the GUI was the Macintosh, and that wouldn't come out for another nine years. Right. right. Didn't Steve Jobs take the idea from Xerox there? He took... It's true that Apple did visit Park in the 70s and saw the Alto and gained inspiration from that. Mm. Um, in, ter- in terms of actual user interaction, you know, they certainly borrowed some ideas from Alto, but also some other people had ideas of their own. Apple also came up with some ideas of its own. And speaking of Apple, they also have the Apple One. Oh, the, the original Apple one. one? Yeah, the original one. Okay, um, without a monitor. That, I don't even think it has a case. Oh, okay. I mean, it was originally sold in a wooden case. Not too many Apple Ones exist because <laughs> when the Apple II came out in a plastic case, uh-huh. Apple said you can trade in your Apple One for an Apple II, and virtually everybody oh, did. Wow. But so the Computer History Museum has one, and by the way, the Fries in Sunnyvale also has one. Oh. Um, <laughs> so the, the Computer History Museum started out as the archives of the Computer Museum, which was located in Boston. You know, a lot of uh, computer companies started in the Boston area, most notably Digital Equipment Corporation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then the museum merged with the Museum of Science in Boston, essentially ceased to exist as an independent museum, at which point the archives were moved out to Silicon Valley and stored in Moffett Field in Mountain View, Um, and they eventually became their own museum, changed their name to the Computer History Museum, and for years they um, had their collection in Moffitt, and what you could do is sign up for tours, guided tours, and a docent would lead you around the exhibits. Because it was at Moffitt Field, you had to um, be stopped at the gate and say why you're going there, and they might randomly search your car, so it was kind of a pain. But earlier this year, they moved into their permanent facilities, also in Mountain View, which is right off of Highway 101 at the Shoreline Boulevard exit. And so now they have their own building. The tours are still guided um, because uh, they still haven't had time to develop permanent exhibits, but it's much easier to get to. And they also have a monthly lecture series. Some of their previous talks included... Uh, the development of databases, early computer games, early uh, consumer software for personal computers, uh, the history of Adobe, 
um, and the history of the Palm Pilot. Oh. The very wide range of topics. They've also hosted employee reunions. Uh, for example, they held a reunion of uh, Digital Equipment Corporation employees. Uh, Digital was bought out by Compaq in 98, and then HP bought out Compaq. Right. So two buyouts later, the remnants of Digital are within Hewlett-Packard. They've had this, so they had a reunion of old DEC employees for them to talk about their experiences. Mm-hmm. They also just recently had similar reunion of Apple employees. Oh, okay. The people who were employed in Apple up to 1993. Right. And they picked that cutoff date because it's only history if it's 10 years or older. Oh. <laughs> so um, it's in Mountain View at uh, Highway 101 in Shoreline, and you, you can uh, set up your uh, guided tour, okay. call them up, and so for more information, you can go to uh, www.computerhistory.org. Uh, Jimmy, thanks a lot for joining us again on Berkeley Cox. Okay, thank you. Ja, und so now here's the answer to last week's question of the week. It's head of the Professor Einstein und, you know, I love the cock and you love the cock as well. But, you know, the thing was, why is the cock so fizzy? But the thing is, it has these things called carbon dioxide. Yeah, the carbon dioxide is dissolved in the, the water and creates this bicarbonate compound. So bicarbonate compound is basically uh, acidic. And so that's why you have a little bit of acid in there. And when it releases from pressure, the carbon dioxide comes out of the soda and you get the fizz Bubbles, oh yeah, that is why the cock is so fizzy. And now here's a Tokyo kid with this week's question of the week. What is the shape of DNA? If you know the answer, or just think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just go down that helical slide. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay... And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.